Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everybody. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, a medical doctor and neuroscientist who suffered from anxiety for many, many years and didn't get some a lot of help or relief from regular therapy. And today I'm very excited to have Vienna Farron on. Now, Vienna is a, a Maryland family therapist out of New York City. She's had thousands and thousands of hours of, of in-person you know, patient contact, which I love, real clinical, yeah. real cl- clinical gravitas to this, not just academic. And she's written a book called The Origin of You, which I read when it came out, which was amazing because she shares part of her own life, as, as I did in my book as well. And she's got a new podcast called This Keeps Happening. So I'm just really excited to have Vienna here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and dive into all the good things, family systems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my training is in somatic experiencing. I've read a bunch of books on IFS. I haven't done any physical training in it. And I know, is how much of IFS is actually your practice? Is it like a small portion, a big portion? Yeah, a small portion. I love um, Dick Schwartz's model. Yeah. And obvious, um, he was actually at Northwestern when I was there. Um, I was there in 07 to 09. So it's been, it's been a little while. But um, yeah, it was really wonderful to get to be trained a little bit in that. Um, but I do think IFS is incredible. Uh, we're at Northwestern, we're really trained, um, with this integrative model and there's a lot of adaptability and it's interesting because I still feel that way. I always say that I think there's as many modalities as there are humans on this planet, right? Like that's the reality of it is that we're not fitting people into boxes and like, this is the only only model that's going to work for you. Um, what I will say, my, my caveat to that is that, uh, whatever modality works great. And the way that we bring this work forward to each individual person, you know, does have to be really personalized. But 
I cannot for the life of me understand any type of therapeutic model that, that does not include looking at the family system that yeah. we grew up in. You know, I don't care how, how it plays out and yeah. um, what type of modality you, you prefer, but we have to take a look at these family systems and really understand the impact. And I think it's so important to find this way of, you know, turning our heads back around, not staying stuck there. We, we don't need to hang out there forever, right. but we do need to dip our toes in. And we do need to connect to some of the stuff that happened in the past for us to, you know, make some headway present day. Yeah. You know, Daniel Siegel talks about this too. She's, he says, I get, I get people coming in saying, I'm a, I'm a mindful practitioner. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to look at the past. I, I just want to stay in the present and that kind of thing. And, and he says, you know, your past creates your present. Your, yeah. It creates your future. So if you don't look it's like, you know, trying to go into a, a room that's completely dark and then searching around for the light switch. It just, right. it just doesn't seem to, to, uh, to resonate. And it's, it's really a lot of this, you know, Freudian concept of the repetition compulsion. You know, mm-hmm. you, we repeat the same thing in adulthood unconsciously yeah. and automatically. This is why we get attracted to the same people and this keeps right. happening. I guess this is a yeah. great, great name for the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Because it's the, it's the same thing. And if you don't mm-hmm. understand what the pattern is, you have no awareness of it. Our blind spots are so powerful that we're in it before we even realize that we're in it. And we're also mm-hmm. seduced by it as well. So it's this double whammy of not seeing it right. and then sort of falling into it. It's like, here I am again with the same person, different haircut, same person. Yeah. You know, it's like we know the the repetition piece so much because it's the one that we talk about so, so often, right? Like the familiarity of it and, oh, here I am choosing the same type of partner yet again or getting into the conflict yet again. Or, you know, somehow I chose a partner who resembles um, qualities of a yeah. caretaker, for example. But we also have the same issue with the path of opposition. I talk about it in the book, mm-hmm. right, where we take this swing, this 180 in the opposite direction. And from the outside looking in, it is possible that the oppositional path looks so much better than if we repeated. So for Mm. example, if you grew up in a family system where conflict was hot and it was explosive and it was just terrible to be around and you've made this promise that you are never going to be in conflict and you take this oppositional path where you're just like, I'm not going to engage in it with anyone. It was too abusive. It was too, too explosive. It's too scary to do that. But then we run the risk of never using our voices, never speaking up, never being able to bring things forward. And so just use that quick example because we'll find ourselves repeating and opposing um, patterns, right? These behaviors from what it was like growing up or what it is that we observed or witnessed and finding ourselves in dynamics that are still not actually aligned or integrated for us. Yeah. So when you have someone that says, okay, my dad was, you know, an alcoholic, so I am absolutely not having anything to do with alcohol or whatever. So how do you create awareness in those, in, in that client and that patient? You know, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, some people are really open to it and others are a little bit more resistant to it. And I think as you know, the therapeutic relationship is one that really requires trust and safety. And sometimes that can happen quickly. Um, and sometimes that's something that takes a really long time, right? It could be months, it could even be years um, before someone shares something that they've never shared before, for example. Or it can take years before someone is ready to hear something from you. 
right? Mm. And that's, you know, that part when you ask that question, you know, sometimes people are open to it and they're willing to explore it and they have some type of like, they can conceptualize that like, sure, going back or understanding this part makes a lot of sense. But I find though the alliance, we call it the therapeutic alliance, um, that the alliance is really our greatest indicator where a person is going to be able to hear something from you as their therapist who holds them with respect and kindness and care and compassion. And I'm still going to point to something that might be hard for us to take a look at. But because you feel safe with me, me and because you feel comfortable with me, mm. you are willing to hear that feedback. So, you know, to that question, how do we do it? Well, kind of little by little, because you're gauging whether or not someone is willing to go there or whether mm. they think it's kind of silly or, you know, I have, I've had clients in the past who are like, my family was great and yeah. it was really oh, yeah. perfect. And, yeah. you know, you're like, okay, well, let's still talk about it a little bit. And they do, but they're not really giving too much. And then you have to find artistic ways to be in conversation with people week after week, month after month, and see where there's a little bit of an open to ask the question in a different way that points to something. Um, we have to be sensitive. And I think what I try to do in the book and what I obviously try to do in my own clinical work is that we're not here to throw our parents under the bus. We're not mm -hmm. here blaming people. We don't have to hate anybody. We don't have to like point the finger constantly. It's about naming what it was. It's about acknowledging. It's about putting a period at the end of the sentence instead of finding finding all of the reasons and explanations and rationalizations around why they couldn't prioritize you or why they were struggling with this X, Y, Z, right? And just actually focusing in our own experience of what it was like growing up or being around that. And I think sometimes when we realize that we're not here to destroy someone else, mm. we don't have to hate them or kick them out of our lives. Uh, some people might want to have separation in space. Okay. But the majority of the people that I work with would like to have a relationship with their family to, to some degree. And so, yeah, like how can I exist honoring my experience without having to push you away or mm. kick you out of my life? And so I think sometimes it makes it a little bit more palatable when we can walk this kind of nuanced space together and know that I'm not going to ask you to reject or deny someone from your life if that's what yeah. you don't want. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the questions that I ask, cause I, I get resistance from people and you know, it's obvious, you know, I had this one guy who was a very successful businessman, very successful, whose dad used to physically beat him by the, mm -hmm. from the time he was seven years old till he was 12. And he said, well, you know, it made me tough. It made me strong. You know, it made me not say no to things. You know, I made me a great salesman. And I said, dude, that's trauma. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and he didn't want to, he didn't want to accept it. So sometimes you get to people and you know where their trauma is. Like sometimes yeah. I have this little spidey sense where I, I know physical, emotional, sexual trauma. I know I can see it. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll ask people, okay, if I give you a magic wand right now and you could change one thing, but only one thing about your childhood, what would it be? Mm -hmm. And I found that one of the most valuable questions for people who are kind of resistant and or have a lot of blind spots. They can't really share what happened. It's like, well, I wish my dad drank a little less, mm -hmm. you know, and we had not even mentioned alcoholism. There was nothing like that. So it's amazing how, how blind we are to our own traumas. And yeah. also how, you know, what you talk about in the book, like honoring your pain, 
like how blind we are to our own our own pain, just being yeah. able to sit with it, you know? And I think that's such a, a valuable resource to be able to just stay with it. It is. You know, so many people say, and it sounds like, you know, the, this patient of yours as well, where it's like our, a colleague of mine says our, 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 our wounds, our pain, um, and our gifts are next door neighbors, right? And it's, it's such a profound yet really simple statement. And, you know, we're all correct. We would not be who we are today yes. without the things that happened to us. You're right. Yes. Check mark. Right. And also this idea that if I heal, I'm going to lose my gift is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And there's this difference between living our lives as adults now being motivated by the pain or the trauma, the irresolution around it, or being motivated by the healing. Like, guess your gifts are your, you know, like the gifts yeah. are here. They don't just disappear because you grieve something or you witness something, right? Like they're not going anywhere. You're, you're uh, someone who doesn't miss a beat. I share this in the book. My, I grew up in a family system where there was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of manipulation, a lot of psychological abuse. It was not directed at me. It was directed at my mother from my father and I observed it. And it was quite literally crazy making for her. You know, there was a lot of paranoia there. She, you know, she couldn't track details. He was really quick with his words. And I was, I'm an only child. So I'm this little, you know, kiddo in the family system watching this go down. And I watch it very carefully. And and because of that, right, I, I became someone who could follow details very closely. I don't miss a beat. I don't forget things. And there's a skill set there, of course. In fact, it makes me a really great therapist. Right. Um, and it doesn't change the fact that watching that, observing that, seeing what that did was deeply impactful and painful and traumatizing for me, right? Like, I, in fact, I turned into an adult who needed to be right and needed to prove her point in relationships. And when I reflected on that playing out in my romantic relationships and tied it back to like, right, because being right meant safety growing up and being wrong was unsafe, right? I watched that, right? And so it's like, so, yes, there are gifts that we accrue through these experiences, but also like these things that play out that we are a part of, um, either experientially or as an observer, they are still like in the driver's seat of our lives in mm -hmm. ways that can you know, there's certain ones that maybe seem very obvious to us, but then there's other ones that just are so subtle. And if we're not inquiring about our behaviors, right, if we're not inquiring about our unwanted patterns, then we're leaving a lot on the table. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that a lot with addictions, you know, like people will develop addictions. And my little theory on addictions, especially, you know, sort of um, opiate addictions and that kind of, is it allows people to be connected and loving and caring because a lot of people had trauma when they were younger and love wasn't, you couldn't trust love. Like the thing with my dad, my dad was schizophrenic and bipolar, so he'd be great for 10 months of the right. year and he was never abusive or violent but when he would go into deep deep depressions or mania where he'd be up for four days playing the trumpet the damn trumpet and uh, <laughs> uh to this day i still have a hard time with the trumpet and i mentioned that in my book but it's just like we develop these these subcortical like below the cort below the cortex below the yeah. thinking mind ability to really see these things and I, I write about this in the book is like I was at this Colin James concert and I was loving the concert. And this, this guy with the trumpet stood up and did a solo 
and I wanted to leave. It was yeah. like this, because of the same like subcortical, sure. you know, these are the things that we as therapists, uh, we try and change these subcortical patterns, but the amygdala, the pons, the medulla, the, all these encoding structures that are subcortical, none of them understand language. Right. So we're trying to use language to change <laughs> these things. Like the fe feeling is the language of these subcortical programs. So we have to change them with feeling and with these cortical changes. But I think in today's sort of academic therapy society, we're, we worship the mind so much. Mm -hmm. And my, my theory on anxiety is it's much more tr old trauma that's stored in the body and the subcortical brain than it is cognition. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to use cognition to change something that isn't even in the same ballpark with it. Right. So it, it temporarily works, absolutely, but it doesn't provide that long lasting thing. And that's why I think going into parts work and really getting into the, where's the sensation in the body? Where do we feel it? Because I think the amygdala has no sense of time. So we go right back to like when you hear somebody arguing in the grocery store, part of your amygdala takes you back to that time when your parents uh, are, are arguing and fighting and in conflict mm -hmm. and your body will react to that. And as soon as your body reacts to it, your mind will give you, your mind's a, a compulsive meaning making make sense machine. It will give you exactly the same thoughts you had now back then. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's hard to see it. So it, it's just really understanding like, how do we, how do we sit with that pain? Like, how do we, right. how do we, how do we process or metabolize that pain? Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's, I think the, I heard the process, where are you from? Where am I from? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm Victoria, British Columbia. Okay. I'm, I was uh, going to yeah, say, you're, yeah, you're, <laughs> my husband's Canadian. I was well, like, I know, I there's know. my Canadian. Well I, well, I know your husband. I'm a big <laughs> fan of Connor. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I've been to a couple of his events over in Vancouver and that awesome. kind of thing too. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so right. Like, and, and this was something, you know, I've, as you said earlier, when you were introducing me, I, you know, I've worked with over you know, 25,000 hours of working with individuals and couples and families. And <clears throat> you know, what I started to see, and obviously I went to grad school for this. I studied to um, marriage and family therapy and you know, the whole framework, right, is sort of this systemic, like understanding the systems that we are around. And you know, there was a period of time where I, gosh, even in grad school, I was like, my parents divorced didn't affect me. I'm good. Everything's mm -hmm. fine. Like I held on to that story. Sure. Like I clung to it. And I even made it all the way through grad school being like, they're good friends now. Like right. they came to my lacrosse games in college. They came to my violin stuff. Like we do holidays together. You know, it's like I could hold, I had all these data points, and these the proof points, right? That yeah. like we're okay and I don't need to feel. And that you know, that, that only took me so far, right? Like we're, I'm okay. I don't need to feel, I didn't know how to feel. I, I grew up with parents who were crashing and burning around me. They went through a nine year divorce process. It was very long, very drawn out and really, really chaotic. And what my perception of it was that there wasn't room for me to not be okay. And so mm. I pretended like I was fine and I pretended like I was okay. And I pretended, you know, I just flew under the radar. I put energy into becoming good at things and I convinced people, you know, everybody thought I was this like well-adjusted person, oh, yeah. well-rounded. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I did a great job of presenting myself that way to the world. And yeah, the reality of it is, is that I did get good at things and I, you know, I was a realm 
well-wounded individual, but I was an individual who was also really in pain, who had no clue that she was in pain because I was so disconnected from self because I didn't believe that there was room for me at all. Mm. Fast forward as a kiddo to a grown adult woman, you know, I was this, um, boundaryless, also fine, easy, like wanted to be the cool girl, you know, and, and, had no connection with self whatsoever. And so mm. to hold on to that narrative that, yeah, I was unaffected. They're fine. Like it was a divorce. Sure, it sucked, but that's that's the extent of it. You know, I held that for so long until I realized that I had was playing this role in my romantic relationships and being this like unaffected, unbothered by things that were really bothersome and really disrespectful and really not okay. And just coming into the awareness of that. And, you know, I had a really big aha moment in my mid late twenties and, you know, to go from the thinking right to the feeling Mm -hmm. part, right. To like actually be in my body. This was so foreign to me. I, had really never deeply felt in this way before. And I remember taking myself through these experiences. I would think about myself as a kid and I would usually find myself at like eight or nine years old, somewhere right around there. And I would have these um, images of myself maybe perched atop the stairs in my mom's home or, you know, maybe in my, if it was at my dad's house, maybe it'd be like in his bedroom, sort of picking up the second phone. I got really good at picking up the phone and listening in, right? Um, like when they're screaming, that's when you pick it up, right? Because they can't hear the click. And, right. you know, when you <laughs> listen, there's, there's a skill set here. Clearly you got this, go, you got this down for sure. <laughs> right. But I, I, yeah. you know, there, there was, so there was such a need for me to know what was true because there was so much gaslighting and manipulation and the stories were so different. And I remember taking myself through these processes where I would close down my eyes and I would witness little me, right? Sitting at the top of the stairs, listening into the conflicts, sitting in the, uh, in the bedroom, like listening in on these calls that I definitely should not have been listening in on and things that I was hearing that I really didn't need to hear or, you know, watching events take place. Police would come to, you know, my home very often. Um, and just being deeply present to what that was like for her. And when I watched her, like almost as if I was on a screen, right? Mm. When I watched her sitting there scared by herself, no other siblings, no other adults in the home, or just, just me sitting there really scared and not knowing what's going on, right? It was sort of this, it, it brought me to an authentic expression of emotion, right? Which is where my grief was, right? My grief mm. just sort of, and when I say grief, like sometimes you're like, do you have to cry? No, you don't have to cry. Like it doesn't have to look a certain way. Right. But for me, it was, it was, there were tears. There was, you know, there was sobbing at times and just like a real release of what it was actually like for me to go through that. I'm a big believer that in order to heal, we must be witnessed. Mm. And 
sometimes when we get someone else to do that witnessing, it's incredible. Like if you have a partner who can witness you, if you have a therapist who can witness you, if you have a dear friend who can witness you, sometimes it's even strangers um, at a retreat, you know, somebody you've just met for 24 hours, but happens to be able to hold that witnessing role. Beautiful. But sometimes we also have to be our own witness, right? Mm. And that was so profound for me to stop explaining away the stuff, to stop having the story, right? right? To stop pretending like everything was not as bad as it was Mm. and to really just drop into witnessing how it happened. And I know, you know, my memory uh, we can argue like how much of our memory is accurate Absolutely, and right. Like yeah. all those things, yeah. but yeah. it doesn't matter. Right. Like to a certain degree, it's like you just have to drop into witnessing and feeling what needs to be felt and processing it that in that somatic way and not try to make sense of it, not try to just connect the dots and be like, well, that's why I am the way that I am mm-hmm. today. Right. Yeah. And, and that for me was just such, it moved everything for me. Right. It like, it, it changed so much for me. And I always say that our unwanted patterns are pain's way of grabbing for our attention. Yeah. Right. And that like pain's not out to get us. Pain is not here to destroy yeah. our lives. It doesn't rub its hands together cynically laughing at us. Right. But pain does need to pull on our coattails and ask us to turn back towards it. Right. Because when we brute force our way, through to the other side. And that's what we do as kiddos, right? We survive. And, you know, anybody who's, we all survived. We we got to this point, but survival, right, is a, there's a bypassing that happens, right? And it's so important for us to not just keep white knuckling our way forward in life, but to turn back around to pain that wants to be acknowledged, that wants to be recognized, and that wants to be honored and actually spend some adequate time with it so that it can loosen its grip on us. Yeah. Our society really rails against uncomfortable emotion, right? So we're in this immediate gratification, dopamine-driven society where we can go to our phones. And this is, I think, a problem with our kids so much now is they don't really actually get to acclimatize or metabolize negative emotion because as soon as they feel anything negative, they just go to their phones. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really give you any capacity or resilience in your nervous system when you've never dealt with Right. you know, boredom where you had to find a way out, you had to find your own way out too. And I think we we often do go into our cognitive. And one of the things that, you know, struck me when you were talking is that, you know, we become very good at things. You know, I became like a, a doctor and a stand-up comedian and an author. And, and it was like, I'm chasing, I'm on a treadmill and the treadmill never ends. It's like, it's, it's going back. And my theory on anxiety basically is it's a mind body separation, Mm. but it's also an adult self child self separation too. So the adult doesn't want to go back to the child because the child holds all their pain and the child looks at the adult, like, why aren't you helping me? Mm -hmm. And the child is going to create that pain or they're going to go into dorsal vagal shutdown. So we'll either dissociate or we'll go into this huge sympathetic, uh, drive and there's there's a difference between being motivated by your by your pain in your past and being driven by it yeah. and i think that's you know that's kind of what healing is you know you start off being driven by it and then after a while when you start understanding it sitting with it you know understanding what that child went through having a picture of that child maybe and just connecting with them then you start being motivated to help them more and to go back and visit them more and take their hand yeah. and walk them to the park i had a, a woman in 
uh, in Canada, who I talked to fairly recently. And she lives basically in the same house she did when she was a child. She's 40 now. And I said, what did you do as a child, you know, when you felt like scared and lonely or whatever? I said, I went to the swings uh, down the street. And I said, are those swings still there? And she goes, yeah. And she went back and she sent me a note later saying, I stayed on those swings for hours. (laughs) And I was just like, I just connected with the younger version of me. And I just swung on those. And I felt my body being moved back and forth. Because so much I think of healing is this somatic somatic part, as opposed to the cognitive part. We need the cognitive stuff. Mm -hmm. But if we don't incorporate that somatic piece, we never really get to the, the deep root of the pain. Yeah, that's right. And I I have the same take as you do, right? That like when we just try to get on with our lives as adults, right? The like inner child is, uh, excuse me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What about me? Yeah. What about me? No, 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 no. You don't get to just move on, right? And again, that's why that little tug, right? Yeah. like, and I, I, always encourage people, instead of being frustrated with the pattern, instead of being frustrated with the pain, to actually get curious, to replace that frustration with curiosity as quickly as possible. Because when we lead with curiosity, guess what? We're going to find stuff. You know, it's like, there's going to be stuff that makes sense. We make sense with context. All of us make sense in context. And if we allow ourselves to connect to that, then we have, there's so much that we can do with that. But the little, the little us is not trying to destroy adult Mm -hmm. us, right? Little us is just like, well, hang on. Like you, you don't get to abandon me too, or you don't get to just go on with your life and not recognize me. I went unrecognized for so long already, or, you know, some version of that. And so, yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying because I think it's vital that we have some relationship with that. Again, we don't have to stay here forever. Yeah. Like it's not like a, you know, for a period of time, if you're really active in, you know, your healing process, sure, you might be doing this on the daily, but you're not going to do this on the daily for the rest of your life, right? Exactly. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to open up that line of communication and that line of feeling um, and that line of experiencing uh, for a period of time so that we can move something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And curiosity is so, you know, uh, you know, the neuroscience of curiosity, we still haven't really defined curiosity, so it's hard to really get any neuro, but really it, do, it does involve the nucleus accumbens. It's, it's hugely dopamine driven in the, in the nucleus accumbens in the ventral and the VTA. And I think what happens with curiosity is we somehow take the emotion out of it. So if we can, if we can be curious about what shamed us as a child, yes. or we can be curious about what blame, it kind of removes that that sort of emotional layer that just drags us into like self blame and judge yeah. what I call jabs, you know, judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame of yourself. Now, if you can get out of that area and you can kind of see it for what it truly is, and curiosity helps us do that, and psychedelics kind of do this on steroids, you know, they basically show us yeah. the, the, the best parts of who we are. For some, I mean, psychedelics for me were horrible and horrifying, but they did show me parts of myself. They showed me that my anxiety was actually not in my mind at all, but in my solar plexus. That's where it was held. Mm-hmm. And it was held around issues with my dad. So it was like, okay, once I learned that, once I saw that that this this pain that I was going through was actually physically located in my body, and you know, mind body, it's hard to sort of separate the mind and the body. Of course, it could be that this solar plexus pain is mediated by the insula, which is part of our brain that that sort of mediates the the top down to the bottom up. It's kind of like the translator between mm-hmm. the two of us. 
And I think the insulin modulates how you feel in your body. And I think I felt the same way in my body when I would see them take my dad off to the mental hospital. And it's the same feeling I have now. Even when I talk about it now, I still feel that same feeling. And can I get in touch with that feeling with curiosity and love and compassion and show that child in me that they're seen, heard, loved, understood, and protected now in a way that they didn't get back then? And I think that's that's how we heal. That's how we, we go back. To, we have to feel it to heal it. We got to go back to that place. But we have support. We have a therapist. We have a friend. We have someone, like you say, that can witness us go through that because that seems to lock in the change as opposed to just sort of when people just say, well, just sit in the pain. Well, for how long? And what do I do? Like right. it just there's so many, as you say, therapies out there. And I think the best the thing that's worked best for me has been a combination of internal family systems, somatic experiencing, and cognitive therapy to some extent, you know. So so what worked for you, Vienna? Like what worked really helped you the, the yeah, most? Yeah, I'll say one more thing about the curiosity because I, I think everything that you said about jabs, right, um, it, there's a depersonalizing that happens because when we're in shame, you know, there's like a behavior that we're engaging with that is shameful to us. I was giving you this example earlier. I was in having a conflict with Connor before we were married. <laughs> and I always say like, I can't remember what the conflict was about at all. But you had to be right. But I had to be right. And yeah. I had to prove my point. And I was doubling down and tripling down. And I kept going. Connor's like, I got it. I understand. Right. Like just held, held this really beautiful space. Yeah. And I'm like going and going and going. And I can't stop. I have like a little bit of an outer body experience where I'm like, Vienna, shut up. Like stop, you know? <laughs> and eventually I stop. And, you know, shame comes in first and it's like, oof, like he's not going to want to be with you, you know, those types of thoughts. And then pretty soon I moved to curiosity and I think curiosity really strips down the personalizing of like, here's what this means about me. And I said, I know behaviors serve a function, Right. They always do, even yeah. if that function is not supportive for the life that you're trying yeah. to lead, but they serve a function. And, you know, that wiggly line into my family of origin and and sitting there and realizing, oh, wow, right? Like what I said before, this is how my dad behaved with my mom. This is what right. I saw. This is what I observed is what I experienced. And of course, being right and proving my point is my safety. And if I can't be right or prove my point, the way that my body experiences that is unsafety, not my mm-hmm. mind. I know cognitively right. that I can be wrong, of course, right? Like I know that I don't have to prove my point with people. In fact, it's a useless thing to do with someone anyways who doesn't want to hear something, right? So I know that cognitively. And I think so many of us know things cognitively, right? We know that this isn't good for us or we, you know, if we choose this thing that here's the consequence to it. And yet, right, like the way that our bodies experience things is oftentimes very different than what we can try to say to ourselves rationally. And so, yeah, what worked for me? Well, I want to say that like, This is a forever practice. And I don't say that to scare people, but I say that because our wounds, they represent themselves in different ways and in different stages in our lives, right? And so there might be something that we are able to place down 
at one point in our lives that we can know is going to get picked back up at some other point in our lives, right? Because, it's a good way of putting it. You know, it's like you become a parent or you get to the final chapter of your life or you have friends who start passing away or, or right? Like there's so many different stages of life in which things are going to represent and reconfront. And so when you say like what's worked, gosh, you know, I, I take people through an origin healing practice in the book. And I think we all know that we have to name and acknowledge something first, you know, that's pretty basic. Um, and if we can't name and acknowledge it, it's very hard to work with it and, Mm -hmm. you know, be with it and process it. Um, for me and with my clients, it's always been about naming it and acknowledging it, witnessing it, allowing for the grief to present and to allow for the grief to take up as much space or as little space or in as many kind of segments as it needs to. Because I think that when we process that way, and again, however many ways, like in whatever ways people move stuff through their bodies, but when we have this deep awareness of the familiarity and we have an understanding of, okay, where, where this came from or what the origin story might be. When we're in the witnessing and the grief part of this, you know the quote that's often, that is attributed to Viktor Frankl about between stimulus and response, right? right. There is this pause, there is a space. This is that space is our way to freedom. And when we witness and grieve, right? When we like move that stuff, the space widens, right? The space mm. actually stretches And what I mean by that is that we don't react as quickly because there is an awareness, there is a deep inner knowing of self, there is maybe a deep inner knowing of others. So if we're doing this work with a partner, for example, and I know your history and I know what it was like for you to grow up in your family system and I know your wounds and your pain and your trauma and what you struggle with and what stories you tell, right? Like when we know these things, right, that, that stretches something for us. I always say that our context is not an excuse, Right. So I'll, mm. I'll iter- reiterate that here. Right? Our context is not an excuse, but it does help us make things make sense. And when we feel well, right, when we when we are willing and repetitive and able to be in the processing, right? As, as you talk about the somatic, the somatics of this, it stretches that pause so that we can choose differently. And mm. that's what I talk about in the book is, is the pivot, right? Where, you know, if you've, when you're jumping from what's familiar to something that's unfamiliar, right? When you're doing it differently than you've ever done it before, yeah. it's not easy of course, right? I always say the um, the like ski tracks when there's a path and somebody else has been there many times before you and you're like, skis are in the, in the track, yep. right? Easy. But then if you jump off the track into fresh powder, oof, I got to work a lot harder, right? Mm-hmm. To, to move these skis. And that is true about the pivot when we're doing something that is unfamiliar to us. But when we do this work, I think it gives us an opportunity to see the things clearly, to feel the things clearly, and then to choose differently in how I'm going to engage in this conversation. Or I notice a conflict style that I use that is self-protective, but not relationally protective. And I'm really working on shifting that and adjusting that and you know, choosing to 
bring my words forward in a different way than I have before. And instead of being passive aggressive, I'm going to just share openly with you, right? And so I think it gives us such an opportunity to actually create the changes that we say that we want in our lives and in our relationships. Yeah. Um, you said something that it really interests me, like uh, self-protective versus relationally mm, protective. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that? Totally. Yeah. And I think when I often talk about how important feedback is in relationships, but what is so hard about feedback is that we become self-protective when we're mm. receiving feedback. And when we're self-protective, right, whether it's defensiveness or we go on the attack or we point out what they're doing wrong as a way to say what we're doing yes. wrong is not so bad or whatever it might be, yeah. right, or like shame comes in or embarrassment comes in or guilt comes in, we are no longer able to hold anything for the relationship, right? Mm. And so this shift from towards self-protection means that there's no space to actually be active in the relationship and be um, open to caring for the system. You can't care for the system if you are self-protective, right? And That's a great saying. Yeah. And you it's, can't care for the system when you're being self-protective. I, you, I love that. Yeah. You, you just can't. Mm. And Again, curiosity, like why do I need to be self-protective right. right now? Again, we make sense, but when we can understand that, the shift is that like the the goal is for us to be able to move to a space where feedback is something that I where I can still hold myself up in high mm. regard. And whether that's feedback from someone else or feedback from ourselves because we give ourselves plenty of self-feedback too. Right. But if we give ourselves feedback and then we're like I'm such an asshole. Right. I'm such a, I can't believe I did that. Da, da, da. Again, we've got to go into self-protection from our own selves. I mean, yeah. we go into self-protection and now we can no longer hold ourselves up, right? And actually explore from that place. And so whether or not it's self-feedback or other feedback, right? This, this movement to how do I need to see myself or what needs to be repaired or reconciled in order for me to not go down the shame spiral, right? So that I can still be connected and present to you, right? To the other person in the system um, and, and or to self because you can't do anything from that position. Yeah. And that's your point about curiosity as well, yeah. because, you know, what I will see with couples, I don't do a lot of couples work, but, mm -hmm. but what I see in my own relationship, let's just <laughs> right into that. And my wife is a, a, a somatic experiencing trauma specialist as uh -huh. well. So there's a lot of conversations around the house. But what I see with us is that we will get into this thing where, and she's much better at coming to me than I am coming to her. Like I'm, I'm much better now, but it's like that curiosity. Cause what happens is that we, we know each other's wounds and on some level, mm -hmm. that's why we come together as a couple. Like couples sure. don't come together by chance. So we know each other's wounds both cortically and subcortically as well. And then you get into this thing where you become defensive. Maybe you say something that that's, you know, hurts the other person, not maybe on purpose, but it just, it, it hits their wound. And then you got two nine-year-olds like <laughs> arguing with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's not going to go well. Right. So, so we have this picture of, uh, uh, we have a picture of each other, uh, in the house when we're about nine years old or eight years old. 
And and sometimes when I when we're arguing about something or whatever, I'll go and have a look at that picture, and it's like that's who you're that's who you're talking to right now. And my compassion just goes like so much because I know what she went through as a child as well. So it's like my compassion goes up. Then I'm able to be you know a lot more open and go back up to her and go, yeah, you know what maybe we should sort of talk about that a little bit more. It really hit a sore spot with me. So I kind of maybe, cause my, my thing is to just withdraw and, and, mm-hmm. and get out of there. Right. Yeah. So I go back and I go, thank you for giving me the space. And then, but it's the curiosity. It's like, as I'm, I'm withdrawing, walking down the stairs, I'm going, here you go again. Like mm-hmm. these are the same stairs that you walk down when you don't want to get into a conflict. Right. So it's, it, it, it is really interesting <clears throat> to see how we sort of devolve into this subcortical place. Mm-hmm. And if we can in, encourage that curiosity, because what I love about curiosity is you can stop the self-blame. You can, your, your self-blame yeah. now becomes targeted. Like the dopamine starts to, to target you and focus you on something rather than this sort of big wall of like pain that you went through as a child. Now that curiosity hits your nucleus accumbens and goes, Hey, you can actually move on the right path with this. How would you do that? It's like, well, I'll go back upstairs and talk again. Right. Exactly. That's where the pivot is. And I love, maybe you have conveniently placed that photo of her on the way down those stairs. (laughs) Maybe I should. (laughs) should should move it. There is a place. Yeah. There is a shelf there. You should move it as you're like stomping down the stairs. That's what um, I will do. And see, you know, see nine-year-old her and then turn that, turn that body around and, you know, go back upstairs. But yeah, it's so helpful to think of each other as kiddos. Um, Mm. I always say this. And at the end of the book, I, um, it's an exercise from a psychotherapist, Michael Kerr, who says to think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and see how that, how, how the perspective changes. And I think if we were to all do that, and again, not excuse making, but to remember like that our partners were tiny humans in a complicated family system, likely that went through some stuff and our parents and the stranger over there. And again, it's not to say what people are doing is okay or right, but to just remember Right, that there's a much bigger story here. And when we're lucky, right, in partnership, for example, when mm. we're lucky and we can know a person intimately and we can know their wounds and we can know their story, and maybe we even know certain family members today and we can make lots of things make sense for us, right? But then to remember like, oh, right, I know in our reactivity or I know that in, you know, blowing something out of proportion, right? Like, we make sense in context, right? And so if I can remember that like, yeah, sure, you're probably not 50-year-old you in front of me right now or 35-year-old you in front of me right now, that you're probably kiddo you or teenager you who's throwing a tantrum and huffing and puffing about something and that like you don't actually feel like an adult, the adult you right now in this moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that question, I know it can be a provoking question. Um, so I am not encouraging people to ask their partners this, right. <laughs> but right, like how old do you feel right now is yeah. a great question to ask yourself. Yeah. I would not encourage you asking that to a partner in conflict. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, if they're you, gonna take it the wrong yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. But if you ask yourself that, how old do yeah. I feel right now? Right. And I'll tell you, when I am reactive or, you know, I'm I'm upset, like I don't feel like a grounded adult. No. I know that it's a moment much earlier, very historical um, to this moment in time. And so again, recognizing these things and bringing them forward, um, being able to touch them, I think is just so helpful, so valuable as we move through this stuff. 
Yeah. And for me, like I track it in my body, right? So for me, my alarm is in my solar plexus. I write about yeah. this in the book. It's it's hot, it's sharp, it's purple, it pushes up in my heart into the back of my spine. And just putting my hand over that area when I'm like in conflict, even with myself mm-hmm. and, and with anyone else, just putting... And uh, Pascal, the actor Pascal, who was I think in Game of Thrones, you'll see him mm-hmm. on the red carpet and he talks about his anxiety, but he puts his hand right over the same place that I have my anxiety. And I look at this this alarm that's in my solar plexus as my younger self, mm-hmm. as Rusty, as the younger version of me. So when I put my hand over there and just kind of unconsciously and consciously say, look, I've got you. Yeah. You know, I see you. I hear you. I understand you. I'll protect you. Immediately, like even now, even with that saying that here, mm-hmm. my breath just goes, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it is one of those things that, that um, I track in my body and I think it's, it's such a way, like people say, well, how do I connect with my grief? How do I connect? Like, how do I do this stuff? It's like, well, you find it in your body right. first and then you, and that's what I put it, you know, in my course in, in MBRX is basically mm-hmm. find the alarm in your body. Yeah. And instead of going into your head, cause you're not going to solve anxiety, which is a problem of overthinking with more thinking, it's right. not going to work that way. So you got to go down into your body, but it takes everything that you can you have to do that sometimes because yeah. your only place you could go as a kid was up into your head. Totally. That was the only place. So you operantly conditioned yourself to go into your head and think when you got into stress. So of course you're going to keep doing that. So I guess one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about before we go is, is repair and how important repair is both to yourself and in relationship and how it builds capacity and resilience in your nervous. Cause I see my, my couple friends, you know, the, the, the ones that do the best, are the ones that kind of have fights and then they repair. The ones that don't do so well don't say anything to each other. They kind of ignore it for a couple of days and then they come back together again. And they tend to kind of go down this path of divorce, whereas the the couples that fight but they repair just seems so much stronger. And I wonder if you could just talk about that in your practice. Yeah, a little full circle moment there is speaking about that path of opposition right at the beginning of our conversation of somebody who's like, I'm not going to bring anything up. I'm not going to say it. Like, I'll never fight. I don't want to do that. It's not safe. And then what happens is we leave a lot of things on the table and a lot of things get unspoken Mm. and there's a lot of resentment that can build. And yeah, repair is so important. And I know, you know, I, I would be remiss in not even naming it and acknowledging it in the parent-child relationship too. Um, right. You know, it's like people will ask me, well, how do I make sure that my children don't have any wounds? And you're like, yeah, well, <laughs> they are going to have wounds. And you guess what? Like you are going to do things that are disappointing and hurtful and hopefully not harmful, but you are going to do mm. things that are hurtful um, and disconnective for them. And they're going to probably have some complaints about you as a, as a parent. But one of the most important things that we can do as a human being, parent, partner, self, friend, whatever, is to acknowledge, take ownership and responsibility where it is appropriate and to be quick to that. I always talk about the race to repair, right? Like Mm. we race and listen, I know this to be true because I was the point prover and had to win and like needed to be right. We race to being right. We race to proving our point. We race to making sure that the other person sees how wrong they are as Mm. opposed to racing to repair. And I think when, when we can hold that in our relationships, 
right? And, and again, with self too, to acknowledge what needs to be acknowledged, to own what needs to be owned. My definition of self-love is the balance, the intersection of, yes, being able to see ourselves as imperfect, flawed human beings who make mistakes and hold some grace and compassion for that, while also taking ownership, acknowledgement, and responsibility. Because if we just say, I'm human, I'm human, okay, whatever, right? That's obviously not going to be... Um, a, an avenue for you know self-respect but if we're too rigid with ourselves and like ownership accountability responsibility and no grace and compassion right like it, it is right. too rigid and i think that repair is about that right is about saying like i am human and i messed up here and i want to repair with you because it shows each of us that we do walk through life in this kind of messy way of course we do yeah. each one of us does and repair and response to the repair is this beautiful thing that says, yeah, we can make mistakes and we can disappoint and then there can still be love there. And listen, sometimes there's obviously a breach and, you know, a mistake might yeah. not allow for repair to happen. But I think, you know, much of the time, you know, this race to being able to say, okay, I take ownership for, I take responsibility for, I acknowledge that this happened. I don't need to explain it and I don't need to defend myself. All I need to do is acknowledge that this happened is what most people want. You know, I, I don't work with kids, but I do work with adults who all have been, who all yeah, have been kids. Everybody's been a kid. Right? Yeah. And most people will Will tell you that the only thing that they like, what they wish, right, what they crave from their parents, the adults in their lives, is for someone to just acknowledge it. We don't need yeah. to go back forty years and oh, let's how do we rewind and make this not happen? It happened, okay. It unfolded the way it unfolded, right? And also, will you just acknowledge it? Will you just own it? Will you just take responsibility? It's amazing to me that like decades and decades and decades and decades later, that people just want that. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. The, the repair piece is so important. And if we can race to repair, if I can be the first one to acknowledge, to see you. Right. Yeah. And I think it's being understood. Like, I think that's one of the fun people say seen and heard, but it's, it's really that sense of being understood. Like Daniel Siegel calls it feeling felt, right? Yeah. Like being understood is so important because often that repair didn't happen as a child. Like my dad did. I mean, he came back to some extent, but he would always go crazy again. So yeah. it was always this sort of, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah. kind of thing. So nothing really got repaired and he eventually committed suicide. So it was like nothing was going to get repaired. Now, that's not exactly true because I have repaired with that quite a bit. But I think there is this sense of being understood by a parent. And then there's this drive to have the parent apologize and that kind of stuff. And that just doesn't work. It's mm -hmm. got to, it's got to really come in from yourself like it really has to start with you and then so many times I'll work with someone it's like you know what I don't need them to apologize anymore because I, I understand myself mm -hmm. I can reflect this back to myself now they need me or they needed someone else to kind of show them that but it's really getting to that point of being understood and even being understood in your in your jabs in your judgments of yourself and mm -hmm. how you abandon yourself how you blame yourself how you shame yourself just this, this is this is what I do. And then again, bringing curiosity into it. It's yeah. like, okay, let's see why that happened. Once the once the subcortical stuff, you know, calms down and my body isn't in this sympathetic hyperdrive anymore, I can kind of go, okay, 
let's look at that a little closer or with my partner or whatever, being able to kind of, this is what happened to me at that point. I kind of lost my freaking mind and I went into this place and she knows what I'm like, right. right? So it's one of those things where being understood is so critical in relationships and especially the relationship to yourself because we are so, as Jordan Peterson says, we're not transparent to ourselves at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the understanding to the self too, right? When I said the wit, like how important witnessing is, like, I don't believe that you can heal without witnessing, right? Like witnessing is the, is the pathway for understanding, right? Like that, that is the way in which we are able to be deeply understood. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so- so is there any, how do people find you? Like, I know that you've got a very popular Instagram account yeah. and that kind of thing, and then find your podcast. Yeah, you sure. Know, this keeps happening. Yeah. yeah. How do people find you? Yeah. You can find me on Instagram at mindful MFT as in marriage, family therapy. Um, the show, the podcast is great. It's called this keeps happening. Um, it's where I am in conversation with anonymous guests who are, uh, struggling with something, right? Maybe it's a pattern or they're uh, in a transitional moment in their lives. And, you know, it's incredible. It's very, you know, we were talking about um, what's so important in therapy, trust and safety. It's a very interesting experience to sit down with a stranger and have an hour um, mm. where there's no follow-up. Um, and I have a few sentences about what it is that they want to talk about. And uh, it's it's quite challenging actually, but it's incredible to see what can happen in conversation when there is still some form of safety that is there and how people open up and what we're able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. Um, and, you know, to the point of the somatics and finding in your body, I often lead people through an experience of like connecting where they're feeling the tension and, you know, bringing hands to that place in their body and moving them through these experiences and to see how like it moves and shifts within their body through this experience. And then there's relief. And, um, so it's been a, it's been a real, uh, challenge and blast recording these episodes. Um, and yeah, newyorkcouplescounseling.com is the group practice and then viennaferrin.com. Uh, so, and then you can buy the book anywhere that books are sold. It's anywhere the, the books are sold. The Origins of You. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And are you, are you guys, I know you and Connor did a, a couples retreat back in the summer. Are you guys still doing that? Yeah. We don't have anything scheduled just yet, but we would like to do one, um, this this year at some point. Um, yeah, we've done a bunch of couples retreats and individuals retreats. We did a beautiful couples uh, workshop weekend um, this past summer. So yeah, you can keep your eye out for some other offerings. I imagine you guys would be amazing together. Yeah. You know, like you're both amazing. So just, you know, Thank putting you. that together would be would be really fantastic. It's so cool to work with Connor. It's amazing. I'll bet it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet it is. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah, is there anything that you want to like end with? Is there some sort of, uh, like with me, I always tell people, you know, you're always safe in the moment. Like that's what I usually mm-hmm. end with. Like people say, what's your big hint? It's like, well, first thing is separate the alarm in your body from the mm-hmm. thoughts of your mind and just mm-hmm. go with the alarm in your body. But the other thing is just worry is always about the future, yeah. right? Worry is always the warnings, what ifs, worst case scenario. There's always about the future. So it could be five minutes from now, it could be five days from there or five years from now. But in this moment, are you safe? This is what I say to people. Yeah. Like, are you safe in this moment? And this is something I use in the middle of the night all the time. Like, I know I'm freaked out about this, this, and this, but you know, in this moment right now, I'm under the covers, I'm kind of comfy, yeah. I'm safe in this moment because I don't think as children, and especially, you know, looking at your childhood as well, 
we don't have this experience of safety. In fact, we have this experience of hypervigilance. Yeah. So even if you take like 15, 30 seconds to acknowledge that you're mm-hmm. safe in that environment, you're showing yourself a different world. So is there that. anything, you know, that you kind of like that, that a theme that kind of runs through with, with like most of your patients? Well, I, I love what you just said. And I think maybe an extension of some of the stuff that I've actually already been saying throughout the, throughout the conversation, but I think there's something soothing when we're reminded that we make sense. And even though a reaction or a behavior or something is just like, why did I do that? Or I can't believe I'm doing that. Or I can't believe I just did that again. This, this reminder that you make sense and that the Mm. curiosity, right, is the invitation to be like, let's begin to understand, you know, what this behavior is trying to protect you from, right? So maybe that's what I'll leave us with is that you do make sense. And that's a really beautiful reminder for you, especially in the moments when you feel like you don't make sense at all. (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. Thanks so much, Vienna. I know we'll talk again. Uh, Best of luck with your podcast and your book is doing amazing bestseller. I mean, it's a great book. Thank you. Get it. It's fantastic. It really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. So thanks for being here and hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you for having me. Of course, Vienna. Bye for now. Bye. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book. Also, coincidentally, called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx podcast. <laughs>